0: Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast, brought to you by Canon Plus. This week's episode is a talk from Toby Sumter entitled, Smashing Patriarchy, from Grace Agenda 2022, Marriage Bootcamp. Check out the full conference available now on Canon Plus. There's a sense in which patriarchy is inevitable. God made the world in such a way that men will always set the direction of a society for better or worse. The question is not whether men will rule. The only question is, how will they rule? Will they rule with wisdom and kindness? Or will they be thugs and tyrants? Will it be a blessing or a curse. But strictly speaking, the word patriarchy means father rule, rule by fathers. And by that definition, we might better say that androcracy is inescapable. Androcracy is the rule of men, and that happens by virtue of there being males born in this world. But patriarchy if we're being precise, is not automatic, since fatherhood is not automatic at all. Fatherhood is not even the bare act of begetting children. It's not just the bare act of begetting children. This is evidenced by the millions of fatherless children in our land. They were begotten. They were conceived, but they are fatherless. They are bastards. They are orphans. They were abandoned by their fathers. Fatherhood, and therefore patriarchy, is far more than merely being male. Patriarchy is far more than merely being male. Far more than merely begetting children. Fatherhood begins by making a world for a woman, by wooing her, marrying her, making her a mother, caring for her, providing for her, loving her, and then providing for her and all the children she bears for you until your dying day. That is fatherhood. Fatherhood is not automatic. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, for though ye have 10,000 instructors in Christ, Yet have ye not many fathers? For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. Wherefore, I beseech you, be ye followers of me. And for this cause I've sent unto you Timothy, who's my beloved son and faithful in the Lord, who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways, which be in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. That's 1 Corinthians four, fifteen to 17. Christians believe in patriarchy, and we are not ashamed to say so. We believe that fathers are blessings, and wise, godly fathers are extraordinary blessings. They are great blessings for their families, they are great blessings for their churches, and great blessings for their nations. When fathers rule, there is safety, there is fruitfulness, and there is great blessing. But when lies gain popularity and power, there are many reactions to those lies. And the reactions are not necessarily truthful or helpful. In fact, reactions are often just the opposite of truthful and helpful. So, with the ascendancy of feminism and egalitarianism and the LGBT fascism, many men have reacted. But not all the reactions are actual reversions to true biblical patriarchy. Just because you assert the leadership of fathers does not mean you're defending biblical patriarchy. Just because you assert the natural dominance of men does not mean you're defending biblical father rule. Fathers are not merely men. Fathers are men who are invested. Fathers are men with skin in the game. Fathers are men who are committed to loving and providing for their people. What separates true Christian patriarchy from all false imitations fundamentally is the insistence that there can be no good or wise rule in this world apart from dying first. Let me say that again. What separates true Christian patriarchy from all other false imitations is the insistence that there can be no good or wise rule in this world apart from dying first. Jesus said that unless a seed goes into the ground and dies, it cannot bear fruit. Unless a man is cut, unless a man is crushed, unless a man dies, he cannot be raised to rule well. He cannot be a true father. He cannot be a good fatherly king. In the beginning... God made Adam, and then in that perfect world, in a sinless world, when Adam had done nothing wrong, God put him into a deep sleep and cut him open and tore out his rib in order to make the first woman. Adam had to suffer and die in order to become a patriarch. Adam had to suffer and die in order to be crowned. As a husband, which was his first step toward fatherhood. And Christ suffered before entering into his glory. So, this is the only way to greatness and authority in this world. True greatness and authority is only granted on the other side of death. There's no greatness or authority apart from Christ. And Christ said that if you wanted to follow him, you had to take up your cross. If you want to find your life, your true life as a faithful man, a godly father, a biblical patriarch, you must lose your life first. So the title of this talk that was given to me by Ben Zorns is Smashing Patriarchy. And I was told that I could talk about it both ways. So it's kind of like the word wicked. Wicked can mean evil, But if you say something's wicked fast or someone is wicked smart, you just mean they're amazingly fast or smart. So there's a sort of false and toxic patriarchy that really does need to be smashed. And all faithful Christians should be committed to smashing it. We are committed to smashing the toxic patriarchy of the Nimrods and the Nebuchadnezzars and the Herods. But having smashed it, what emerges from the ashes of that grave by faith in God the Father Almighty and His Son Jesus Christ is a truly glorious patriarchy, a sensational patriarchy, we might say, a smashing patriarchy. And we're for that. So I've made a list of six things for you this evening, a list of six things. Three things that must be smashed. Three things that must be smashed in order to build a marriage, a family, and a culture that will weather the storms of this world. And then three things that you must cultivate in order to have a smashing good marriage and a smashing good family. So, three things that must be smashed and three things that you must put on and lock and load. Number one, smash your feelings. We live in a world that worships self and therefore the world tends to assume that there's something sacred about your feelings. We're told regularly that it is good and helpful to share our feelings. Just just let it out. Just share it with us. It'll make you feel better. It'll make everything feel better, we're told. But it turns out, that our feelings are just as fallen as the rest of us. It's not wise and helpful to share your every thought that runs through your mind. I hope you've figured that out. But by the same token, it's not really helpful to share all your feelings. So stop it. It's not good to be transparent. And this really goes for everyone, not just the men hypocrisy and emotional puke fests are not the only two options. You say, I don't want to be a hypocrite. Fine, don't be a hypocrite, but that doesn't mean you need to emotionally puke on your family. You can be honest and love your neighbor. I know, it's radical, isn't it? Revolutionary. You can be honest and not share everything. You can be honest and humble about the fact that a bunch of your feelings are really stupid. Smash your feelings. In particular, in marriage, men need to remember that there is actually a way that their wife is allowed to pour out, your, your wife is allowed to pour out her heart to you in a way that you must not do to her in return. Now, I'm not saying that she's allowed to emotionally puke on you, No, no, but there is an asymmetry to marriage. She may pour out her heart to you in a way that you must not do to her. You might say, but I'm just trying to be honest, but lots of times it's just you being rude. You might call it transparency and she might have even asked you for it. Don't fall for the trap. Not all of her ideas are good. This principle is implied in the command to love your wife as Jesus loved the church. The church has actually been given an inspired book of prayers called the Psalms. God gave us an inspired book of words that he actually wants his bride, the church, to use to talk to him with. It's the book of Psalms. And therefore, a godly woman who's seeking to imitate the submission of the church to Christ can imitate those prayers as she communicates with her husband. This is is actually a good practice. If you want to think, how should I talk to my husband? Read the Psalms. The Psalms are an inspired book of speeches, scripts, that God's given to his bride to talk to him. So a Christian woman who's imitating the bride should use them to talk to her husband. As you know, lots of those prayers are praise and honor. So wives, imitate that. Lots of those prayers are praising him for his faithfulness, praising him for his courage, praising him for his provision. But lots of those prayers are also laments and cries for help. They go something like this. Where have you been all day? Why have you not answered any of my text? I'm surrounded by people in diapers. Come quickly with chocolate." All very good things to text your husband, according to the book of Psalms. (laughs) But if a man does the same thing to his wife in reverse, he's looking for trouble. And more importantly, he's not imitating Christ. Christ doesn't answer our prayers with a long list of how rough it's been up in heaven with all of us losers always messing things up. Thanks for sharing, bride. Now let me tell you what it's like up here. No, that's not how he responds. That's not how Jesus receives our prayers. It's not how the Father responds to our cries, to our laments, to our pleas. So smash your feelings. Your feelings need to be disciplined and ruled over. Do you want to rule in your home? Do you want authority at work? Do you want to rule and serve in the church? then start by ruling over your feelings. Sad feelings, angry feelings, worried feelings, stressed feelings. Tell them all to take a hike. Tell them that they are not God. You do not have to submit to them. Tell them to get in line and obey Jesus. Kill your feelings. Smash your feelings. Rule your feelings so that you can rule well. Number two, smash your pride. Smash your pride. Of course, we could do a whole talk, even a whole conference on this one, but let me point out two places where your pride likes to weasel its way into your heart. The first one is bitterness. Sometimes people really do wrong you. Sometimes they may ask your forgiveness. Sometimes they don't. And when they don't, when everything has not yet been put right, It's not bitterness to know that. It's not bitterness to know that something's dislocated here. There's something off here. There's something wrong here. It's not bitterness to know that. But it is bitterness to resent that. It is bitterness to prickle about it. It's bitterness to stoke anger about it, to seethe over it. And if you have forgiven, if they've actually come to you and you've been reconciled, if you've talked it out, It really must be completely good in your heart. But pride can tempt you to hold on to some offense, some resentment, whether it was made right or not, because there's this little voice in the back of your head saying, how could they do that to me? How could they do that to me? But here's the thing you need to remember. You're pretending, that voice is pretending that you are so great and high and mighty, but you're not that important. Smash your pride. Here's something that's helpful to remember from time to time. You're going to die and be forgotten. This is a great conference, isn't it? A lot of men would go a long way in faithfulness if they'd remember that. Smash your pride. Second, related, this ties back into the first thing. Don't wallow around in your failures. This is still on smash your pride. Don't wallow around in your failures. Some of you are tempted to keep a record of other people's wrongs. That's the first form of pride that needs to be smashed. Some of you are tempted to keep a record of other people's wrongs against you because you're full of pride. But some of you are tempted to go over your own wrongs and failures over and over and over because you are full of pride. But this second one can be more insidious because it feels more pious. It feels more holy. You say, but aren't we Calvinists? total depravity and all that. I'm horrible, 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 awful, 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 despicable, despicable, despicable. Stop it. You're not that important. It's actually full of pride because if you've confessed your sins and repented, there certainly may be certain lessons to learn. There might be new obedience and habits to work on. I'm not talking about that. But if you're wallowing around in your disappointment, if you're kicking yourself down the stairs over and over again, carrying around a backpack full of sorrow and fuss and whine because you messed up so, so, so bad, you're implicitly claiming that your failure is that important, that you are so important that your mistakes and sins have probably thrown the universe off kilter. But here's some more encouragement. You're not that important. Smash your pride. Smash it. Confess it. Move on. And it really is high-handed pride in the face of the gospel in both scenarios, whether you're holding things resentfully against people or whether you're just wallowing around in your own depravity. It's high-handed pride. God says, you're forgiven. He says, Jesus died for your sin, and he died for their sin. And therefore, your sins are paid for, dealt with, and you are clean. And in those cases where someone really has wronged you and they haven't asked for your forgiveness yet, you must still have forgiveness ready for them. You must have forgiveness ready for them. Christ died and his blood is ready for them, isn't it? And if his blood is ready for them, then it's ready for you to have for them. But when you carry on whining and fussing, complaining, resentful, angry, and bitter, about them or about yourself, you're in effect saying that the blood of Christ is not good enough. God says you're forgiven. And you're saying, no, not yet. I need to suffer a little bit more. God says this blood cleanses every stain. And you're saying, no, it doesn't. That's pride. That's arrogance. And that needs to die. Smash your pride. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Three, smash your lust. Smash your feelings, smash your pride, smash your lust. In reality, lust really just is one of your feelings all twisted. It's one of your appetites gone rogue. And so the central question that you need to ask is who's in charge? Who is king? Who rules in your life? in your heart, in your mind? Is it your appetites, your desires, your feelings, or is it Jesus and his spirit? Part of the way Christian men need to gain mastery over this area is by beginning to tell the truth about it. There are so many lies that surround this whole area. You must tell the truth both about the world that God made and the nature of your sin, your lust. So first, the truth about the world God made. The glory of women is their beauty. God made woman to be the glory of man. And that means she makes humanity shine. The word woman in Hebrew literally means fire. And so she lights up the world with life, both in the life she cultivates inside of herself and in the way she makes home. But this means that it will not do any good to say that that bikini babe on the cover of the magazine in the checkout aisle is ugly. Now you're lying. Now that's not the problem. The problem is not that she's ugly, the, the, she's probably beautiful. The problem is that she's treating her beauty cheaply, she's trashing her beauty. This goes for you moms as well. Don't tell your kids, don't tell your little boys, that's ugly. Don't lie to them. You're creating this tension in them. I I am attracted to something that mom says is ugly. No, tell them, that's beautiful. And it's a shame what she's doing with it. She's someone's daughter, someone's sister. She's not being protected. She's. Probably beautiful, and the problem is that she's treating her beauty cheaply. And if you're giving in to lust, you're treating her beauty cheaply also. But don't lie and call it ugly. God made a woman to be beautiful. It's no sin to notice that. But her beauty is for her husband. She should not be flaunting it, and you should not be coveting it. Second, you must tell the truth about your sin. And that is that lust is not a little problem. Lust is not a little problem. Jesus counsels cutting off hands and plucking out eyes to deal with it. Jesus says it would be better to enter life maimed and blind than to go to hell with both your hands and both your eyes. That means that lust is the kind of sin that leads men to hell. That's what Jesus says. And Proverbs says that the steps of the immoral woman lead right down to the grave. And in the meantime, it's the kind of sin that creates hell for everyone around you. That's how bad it is. That's how big a problem it is. Jesus counsels cutting off hands and plucking out eyes. And remember, hands and eyes are perfectly good things. God created them. They're useful, they're helpful, they're good. But if they're causing you to sin, Jesus says, cut them off, pluck them out. And the point here is that sometimes what you need to do to take care of this sin will be painful, awkward, and extreme. You will probably get questions about it. What happened to your hand? <laughs> But if, but if you're not taking the kind of steps that could ever get a question asked, where is your smartphone? What, you don't have internet here? Why not? You haven't obeyed. And you're not taking the words of Jesus seriously. So do whatever it takes. Get rid of your phone. Cancel your internet. Password protect everything. Quit your job. Move. Do whatever it takes. Many men daydream about fighting dragons and killing bad guys. And then when it comes to the dragon of lust, they play footsie with it and act like they don't know what to do. Get out your sword and kill the damn thing. Do whatever it takes. You're a man. God made you strong. But if you will not fight here, then no one should trust you to protect anything, anywhere. Lastly, do not miss the fact that there are often lies and pride connected to this sin. Many men harbor bitterness in their pride, as we just talked about, and then, feeling bad for themselves, turn to sexual immorality. Tell themselves it's been so hard and they just can't help it. Or maybe you have a very high view of yourself, your abilities, your smarts, and you think your lust is just a little reward for how good you've been. Either way, pride and lies and unrestrained feelings can be at the root of lust. So confess it all, smash it all. And the thing you must do is ask God to kill it. And you must want it completely dead. In Lewis's Great Divorce, you might remember that Lewis pictures lust like an ugly little lizard latched onto the neck of a of a spirit, a departed spirit that's trying to make it into heaven. And an angel comes with a sword and informs the spirit man that he cannot go to heaven with that lizard on his neck. It must be killed, but the man doesn't want to have it killed. And many men are just like that, saying that they will repent of their sexual sin tomorrow, next week, probably next week, maybe next week, or maybe they will mostly cut it off. But deep down inside, they're always leaving at least one door open. The problem is you don't really want it dead. The Bible teaches that repentance is always a twofold action. Repentance is turning away from sin and turning toward Christ and obedience. It's putting off the old man and putting on the new man. It's an ongoing death to self and resurrection to Christ. And related to all that is the fact that the best defense is a good offense. The best defense is a good offense. So you need to smash your feelings, smash your pride, and smash your lust. But while you're smashing all your sin, you always want to be putting new obedience in its place. So, as promised, here are three things to strap on, three things to put on, three things to lock and load if you would be a smashing patriarch. Number one, embrace adventure. Father's embrace adventure. The thing you must always remember is that sin is the dead end. Sin is the dead end. Sin is boring. Sin is lame. God created the heavens and the earth. All the best things in this universe were his idea. God is the brilliant one. He has the best sense of humor. He's life itself. He's exuberance. God is the great Adventure and God is our Father. God made porcupines and alligators and elephants and peacocks and mountains and hail and oceans and asteroids and beer. God made a world of mystery and wonder and speed and velocity and danger and noises and smells and tastes and things that go boom. And God made men to love and reflect many of those attributes. Remember, God made boys, and men are boys with more hair and muscles. And God loves them. God loves them. God made them for adventure, to explore, to discover, to risk. Is there an abandoned, boarded-up building? What boy doesn't want to break a window and crawl in is there an island in the middle of the river what boy doesn't want to swim or sail across and explore it and probably camp out there for the rest of the summer is there a ravine let's try to cross it a high dive jump give a boy an object and it doesn't take five minutes before it's a tool or a weapon or a game Send a group of boys outside and within minutes, they will have started a game or competition, invented a game or competition, or have begun some kind of battle or war. And not to throw any shade at all, but girls hardly ever do that. God made Adam and immediately sketched him a map. I love that. Men love maps. Men love maps because men were made for adventure. God told Adam that the river that flowed out of the garden divided into four heads. The first was called the Pishon, and it went down to a land called Havilah, where the gold was good, and there are bedulum and onyx stones. And the second river is called Gihon, and went down into the land of Ethiopia. And the third was Hidekel, and it went to the land of Assyria. And the fourth was shrouded in glorious mystery, only called the Euphrates. God made man to explore. To discover. Man was made for adventure. God, your father, is the greatest adventurer, and following him, imitating him, means a life of adventure. But the adventure is for the sake of the mission. The adventure is for the sake of the mission. The mission was to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And God made men with an instinct for adventure in order to fulfill that mission that's what the treasure map was for and this is part of the glory of fatherhood men who reject the responsibility of fatherhood selfishly seek adventure for themselves but that is a fruitless adventure if no one's following you if no one's learning from you if no one's imitating you if your adventure is not for them or for their good you're not a father you're not a patriarch You're just a lost boy. But fathers seek adventure for the good of their people, for the good of their children. Noah built a floating zoo and sailed into a new world for his family. Abraham left one family in order to form a new one while taming a wilderness for his descendants. Moses played with snakes and tyrants and led his people through the sea and the desert. David struck down giants. Daniel stood up to pagan kings. Nehemiah rebuilt in the ruins. Paul took the gospel to Rome. Fathers are men who live for the adventures that accomplish the mission to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth with glory. To rule over creation with joy for the good of their people in obedience to God our Father. This is why men built boats and sailed until they found new worlds. Men tame wild animals. Men build bridges and bring water to cities from hundreds of thousands of miles away. Men determined to learn how to fly. A few years ago, I listened to an audiobook about the Wright brothers. And about, it's like three quarters, four fifths of the way through the book, they finally have their first flight and I cried. These are men who gave themselves to it. Let's fly. And then, a few years later, other men sent their friends to the moon and back. Fathers, you are made to lead your families on the greatest adventure through this life all the way to heaven. This is what you're made for. This is our Father's world. Jesus bought it with his blood. What excites you? What excites you? What fills you with awe? Show your family. Show them, take them to it. My dad used to take me with him when he did evangelism. He'd go door to door to strangers' houses and tell them about Jesus. And he took me with him. That was adventure. You never knew it was going to happen. I love him for it. My father-in-law, he loved the Civil War. And he would take me and my wife, who was then my girlfriend, to old battlefields for dates. (laughs) But he loved it. I don't remember the stories, but I remember the love. Pastor Doug has gone toe to toe over and over again with atheists and liberals with a huge smile on his face. This is what fathers do take your family on adventures. Take them on vacations. Take them to your favorite places. Show them the inside of your car's engine. Show them the inside of a deer. Show them the inside of your Bible. Explore, discover, build, invent, fight, die. This is a smashing patriarchy. Two, be loyal be loyal. We believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. This is the foundation of all true and good patriarchy. We believe in patriarchy because we believe in God the great patriarch. And incidentally, this is why the world hates fatherhood and all good patriarchy because it reminds them of God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. But what follows in the creed What follows in the Apostles' Creed is a glorious expression of God's loyalty, God's faithfulness. Why did Jesus Christ come? Why did he die? Why did he rise? Because we were traitors in Adam. We broke covenant. We broke our word. But God was faithful. God is loyal. Fathers, men, keep your vows. Keep your marriage vows. You swore to keep yourself only for her so long as you both shall live. This is biblical and smashing patriarchy. Keep your promises. Be men of your word. And if you've broken your word, put it right. Make it right. Psalm 15 says that the faithful man swears to his own hurt and does not change. Be loyal to the pain, loyal to the death. Keep your promises in business. Keep your contracts. Pay your bills. Pay your debts. Keep your word. Be loyal to your children. If you promised your son that you would build him a tree fort, if you promised to get him a dog, if you promised to go on vacation, if you promised to read a book, if you promised him a great reward, if you promised to go out for dinner, be faithful, be truthful, be loyal, keep your word like God the Father Almighty. I love it how when God established The tabernacle and the high priest was given a uniform. God instructed Israel to engrave the names of the tribes of Israel on precious stones and put them on the high priest's breastplate. Israel, that rebellious nation, that complaining nation, that hard-hearted nation. And God said, I want all their names on full display every time you come into my presence. God said he was on team Israel. God is loyal. God is a faithful father, and he was faithful to the death, to the pain. He sent his only son to die for traitors and enemies in order to make them into his friends. This is fatherhood. This is smashing patriarchy, loyal to the pain, loyal to the death. Men, are you practicing loyalty like this? Are the names of your wife and your kids plastered on your heart the way God insists that our names be on him? Or do you complain about your wife to your friends? Do you complain about your children? Be careful about the stories you tell. There's a fine line, but know where it is. The stories you tell should be the kinds of things that make your kids look good, that make your wife look good. Don't lie, don't be arrogant, don't be boastful, but be loyal in how you talk about them. Don't rag on them, don't criticize them, don't pick them apart. Let your words and your stories be loyal to them. Do you want them to be loyal to you? Do you want them to be loyal to your God? Show them how. Be loyal to them. Stand with them. Stand for them. Stand proudly of them. Praise them. Speak highly of them. God is easy to please, but hard to satisfy. God is easy to please, hard to satisfy. But this is part of God's loyalty. He's easy to please. You know how when your kids are little, the kids are little and they're drawing pictures. One of your your kids will bring you a picture that they just finished drawing and they hold it up to you and you look at it and you, that's wonderful. What is it? And they'll say, it's you. (laughs) What do you do? It's right there on the fridge. It's going right up here. That is wonderful. Thank you, honey. Right? Now, you're not saying that you're satisfied with their art, but you're very, very pleased. God is like that. God is loyal to us like that. Be loyal to your people like that. Lastly, cultivate kindness. Cultivate kindness. This is closely related to loyalty, and that is cultivating fatherly kindness. Cover over the mistakes of your people as much as possible. Overlook them the way God overlooks yours. Psalm 103 says that like a tender father, God remembers our frames and he removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. God is a tender father with us. Are you that kind of tender father with your people? This doesn't mean ignoring real problems, but it means being inclined to cover anything you can in love and then confronting those things that need to be dealt with in love, but with all joy and kindness. Remember the father in the parable of the prodigal, looking down the road for his wayward and rebellious son. What had that father been thinking about all that time? He wasn't preparing a lecture. He wasn't preparing a sermon. He wasn't preparing punishment. He was preparing a hug and a party. He was preparing for joy. That's fatherly kindness. And kind fathers give good gifts. Be generous. Jesus says that we, being evil, know how to give good gifts to our children, but our Father gives the Holy Spirit and all good things freely when we ask for them. So be a man of gifts, of good surprises, presents, and overflowing generosity. Don't give beyond your means, but definitely give more than is reasonable. If you're not giving more than is reasonable, up your game. Give without keeping track. Give and don't bother with the fact that lots of your gifts go by the wayside and end up at goodwill. Don't be that dad. Wait, I, 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 give, I give, 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 and give some more. God gives and gives, and he isn't bothered by the fact that we can't enjoy all his gifts all the time. This is grace and kindness. The kindness of fathers is also particularly displayed in affection. We live in a world that really is starving for love, for kindness, and for grace, and so many women and children go looking for it in all the wrong places. We know that the love they seek is ultimately in the Father through Jesus, but this is why the hugs and kisses and touch of earthly fathers is so potent. In a world of all kinds of inappropriate touch, fathers cultivate Appropriate affection. Kind fathers tickle their young children. Fathers wrestle their boys. Fathers hold their girls and kiss their cheeks and hold their hands. And you need to hold them even after they're done. Right, you know, they're, they're hold them. And some of them are pushing you away. Just hold another 10 seconds. Tell them their tank wasn't all the way full yet. Fathers put fists on the foreheads of their boys and pinch their ears and put them in headlocks. This is kindness. Fathers swing children around and throw they throw their babies in the air and catch them because they can. And this, too, mothers, is great kindness. Fathers give the gift of kindness through their joy and laughter as well. Lead, your family enjoy. I have a terrible memory for jokes. And so the joke around our house is to see how many times you can tell dad a joke that he can't remember the punchline to and still laughs like it was the first time you ever heard it. And by the way, dad jokes are the best jokes and don't stop. That's your job. That's what we're for. It's how you lead with joy and kindness in the Lord. God the Father rejoices over his son. This is my son, he says, in whom I am well pleased. And so all faithful fathers rejoice over their families. God the Father laughs at the nations plotting against him, and he tells them to kiss his son in submission. And so faithful fatherhood, faithful patriarchy laughs at the world, laughs at the devil's schemes, laughs at the cultural and political insanity because Christ is king and all things belong to him. Christ is risen and he's making all things new. So cultivate kindness because God is good and his mercies are new every morning. Forgive and forgive and forgive again because you've been forgiven like that. Laugh, smile, sing, rejoice, smash your sin, and put on Christ. Die to yourself and live a life of adventure, loyalty, and kindness. And that really is a smashing patriarchy. Amen enjoyed this episode be sure to check out the full conference marriage boot camp grace agenda 2022 now available on canon plus